This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The winter is well and truly upon us, ladies and gentlemen, as more parts of the country prepare to move into stricter and stricter lockdown. Today, the focus of most of the newspapers seems to be on what the rules are, where the rules are different, and who knows what they actually are. It turns out the top police officer in charge of making sure the rules are applied doesn't know what they are either. Hardly surprising. I don't think anybody does. Kip Malthouse was on uh, breakfast this morning with Alistair Stewart, and of course the problem for an awful lot of people, apart from the fact that it says that I'm now Alistair Stewart, uh, is that uh, in fact, Home Office Minister Kit Malthouse doesn't have a clue what's going on. Uh, he says, however, that's not necessarily a problem. And I have some sympathy for him because he says, if you live in Liverpool, you only need to know what the rules are in Liverpool. If you live in Manchester, you only need to know what the rules are in Manchester. If you live in Exeter, you only need to know what the rules are in Exeter. But there does seem to be an awful lot of inconsistency, doesn't there? Gyms will be opening in Liverpool again thanks to a brave campaign by one gym owner who refused to shut. So despite being in Tier 3, presumably every other area can keep their gyms open as well. This morning we will ask Professor Carol Sikora whether he thinks the strategy is working. The government is claiming that infection rates in the North East are slowing down about one month after restrictions were in on university students. What we do know is that he is very concerned about the continuing lockdown policy and the effect it is having on society as a whole. He says you mustn't forget everything else that's going on, and I agree with him. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later, we'll be hearing from Chancellor Rishi Sunak as well when he unveils a new package of financial help for people in Tier 2 areas. So if you are in that situation, there might finally be some respite, and we'd love to hear from you as well. 0344 499 1000. We know an awful lot of businesses are going to be very happy to hear that there is some money coming your way. Commentator Helen Dale also joins us with her take on the big stories of the week, including the cancelling of a Nobel laureate from a scientific conference because of his views on COVID and that terrible story about the babies who died in Australia because they couldn't be moved from one hospital to another for life-saving heart surgery. 0344 499 1000. We've also got some great big names joining us this morning as well. TalkSport legend Alan Brazil is going to be here. Lewis McLeod will bring us some more spitting images. And Martin Kemp from Spandau Ballet is going to be telling us what makes him smile. Plus, we've got LaDonna Harvey on the big Trump-Biden debate tonight as well. It's as if there's hardly any time to fit it all into three hours. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, without further ado, let us go and say a very good morning to Professor Carol Sikora, former head of the WHO Cancer Programme and Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham. Carol, a very good morning to you. Welcome back. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I read with interest your piece in The Spectator uh, earlier on this week in which you were basically sort of warning about the danger of just concentrating on COVID and just concentrating on the lockdown. Um, And I wanted to ask you what you're making at the moment of the strategy uh, which is this kind of localised, regionalised lockdown. Um, and the fact that on, on the northeast part of uh, England, apparently, the government is saying they're encouraged by the flattening, if you like, of the infection rates. There does seem to be a flattening, which is really good. The number of hospital admissions is the key factor. And I look every day at four o'clock, often doesn't come out for an hour or so. But yesterday, the, the figure was 996 hospital admissions for, with COVID. Yeah. And, and the re- that's important it tells you first of all the health of the population but more importantly it's an indicator will the nhs be flooded will it be overloaded 
And that's really, to me, the only reason for doing any sort of lockdown at all, any sort of restriction, if the NHS can't cope. So at the moment, it's okay. Now, there is some local problem. There are some local problems. Liverpool, we've just heard, hospitals are getting a bit full. Uh, but certainly down in London, everything's fine. Mm. The intensive care units uh, are relatively empty of COVID. They're full of other patients, but they're empty of COVID. The problem is, if we fill them with COVID patients, that means you can't have any big operations. If you have a big operation for cancer, say my specialty, and then you've got to spend 48 hours in intensive care to recover from it. That's the normal practice, lung operation, big abdominal operations and so on. That means that uh, if you've got no ICU beds, you're stuck. You have to cancel the operations. And that's what we really can't afford to do. We can't allow the NHS just to do COVID. It's got to do a balance. Yes. And we know, of course, that uh, some of that has been already happening. I mean, we've been getting warnings for a while from, from various public health authorities saying, oh, we don't want to have to cancel other operations. But you and I both know, Carol, that since about April, there have been cancellations of other methods of, of treatment and other operations and other medical, um, uh, you know, everyday matters which simply cannot go ahead. I know. And uh, the, the whole problem is if you start looking at the number of life years lost, which is a very good way of calculating overall health gain. In other words, uh, if you lose a lot of life years, if people at the age of 40 lose their life because they can't get a cancer operation, they're going to lose 40 years of life because the average age is 80 when we, we pass. So if you're 80 when you go, then you lose very little. Yeah. And that's the whole difficult ethical balance we've got to get our heads around. And so it's really important the NHS concentrates on younger people with curable conditions that need treatment now. Exactly right. And your, your interesting tweet earlier on today as well, uh, suggesting that people self-isolating ought to be given some form of, um, of remuneration as well, because you're saying, uh, I think many people know people who aren't doing it properly. And it's kind of naive to think 100 percent of people are. I mean, I think we're now in a position, are we not, where where basically people, one, don't always understand what the rules are. And two, if they do understand them, have taken the opportunity to break them. I think you're, you're right. You know, the rules are too complex. We should just have national rules, quite frankly. Um, can you really control a local outbreak by making the rules more stringent? You can only do that if people understand. And the simplest thing that we're not concentrating enough on, to me, people with a temperature and a cough shouldn't be going out of their houses. Mm. I mean, even if they feel fine. I mean, a lot of, and that's the problem with this virus. At the, at the good end of it, People feel fine. They're infected, definitely, and they're likely to spread the infection if they go out. But they don't understand that. And if you're if, if you're paid by the hour, you're paid eight pounds an hour to do something, and that's your only source of income. What are you to do? I mean, how are you going to eat? And that's what I think we have to concentrate on these people to support them, not send the police around. That's not the approach. The idea is let's support them, find out how we can persuade them and finance them to, to actually stay at home. And that would really reduce the, the spread of the pandemic. Yes, absolutely right. And as far as this um, uh, kind of, you know, continuing lockdown procedure is concerned, one of the questions that I get asked quite a lot and that I've been asking is how do we know when one of these lockdowns has been successful, for example, in Wales um, and in Manchester and in South Yorkshire, places that are going to go into these lockdowns. I mean, we say uh, for a period of time, like maybe two weeks or, you know, possibly longer, but nobody seems to be giving targets as to what it is that will be the date at which you say, well, now we've done enough and now we can lift it again. You know, Mike, it does my head in. The question I have for all my infection colleagues, and they don't answer it properly, and these uh, doom-laden epidemiologists you see uh, on each side of the politicians when they have these conferences, is, you know, if Wales goes into lockdown, or anywhere goes into a strict lockdown for two weeks, a circuit break or a firewall, what a fire break or whatever you want to call it, what good does it do? Because at the end of it, sure, you'll lower the R factor, you'll lower the infectivity just a little, a couple of decimal points. And then the minute you come back out, which you have to, if you promise people it's only going to be two weeks, it'll be back up again. So you've wasted whatever the sum is financially for two weeks for really no gain. Mm. And the NHS in Wales is not under a lot of stress at the moment. It's not got a lot of admissions. And in the numbers are going down. And yet tomorrow night, that's it. Wales is closed. Yeah. I mean, it, 
makes no sense whatsoever. No, of course it really doesn't. And of course, the other problem as well uh, is the problem that you've also talked about in your Spectator article of deaths at home. You know, some people believe that actually going out to a pub uh, might be safer uh, than huddling in your own home with lots of people being much closer to you than they would be if you were out uh, and about in a restaurant. Absolutely. Uh, the, the people that die, what we've seen is a shift in hospital deaths to home deaths, a huge shift. And they're from things like cancer, from stroke, from heart attacks and so on. And that's because people have been too fr either too frightened to get into the system or the system's not allowed them to get into it. And when we started, you know, general practice was difficult. It's a lot better now. You can phone up and get an appointment. Uh, and then investigations in hospitals were very difficult. Now they're open again. We've got quite good procedures now around cancer for getting started uh, once you you know you've got the disease, but you've got to motivate people not to be scared to call the GP, to go to the hospital, to get a scan of some sort or an X-ray or a blood test to make sure they haven't got cancer. The great thing of reassurance is most people that are thought to have cancer actually don't, they're fine. Uh, but they do need to have the test to pick up those that do have so we can get them into the system for treatment. The treatment system is working well. It's working well for stroke and heart attacks, there's no doubt. It's just persuading people to, to get in. If you've got a lockdown going on, it's much more difficult. It's much more frightening. Yeah. Now, I had Piers Morgan in here last week, Professor, and you might be uh, not surprised to know that your name did come up because he was suggesting that uh, you had said there wouldn't be a second wave and that I was in the same boat having said that there wouldn't be a second wave. Um, is this a second wave and is it the, the, the thing that you didn't expect? I didn't expect it to be so severe. I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't expect the first wave to be so severe. Sure. I was telling it's all going to blow away. Just relax. Don't bother. We'll just carry on as normal. And that was way back in March, and it clearly didn't. The second wave, I think it's, it's a very different curve, as you see. What we don't know, nobody knows, is how the curve's going to go down, when it's going to go down. If you look at it now, if you're an optimist like me, and I know you are, Mike, uh, it does look as though it's plateauing mm. uh, in terms of key factors. The numbers are very difficult. The numbers are sometimes double counted. More testing means more numbers and all the rest of it. So the hospital admissions are the key. What's happening to those? And it does look as though it's about stable at the about 900 to 1000 people a day being admitted. And obviously people are being discharged. So there's a continual steady state reach. When will it go down? Well, we hope next week, if it starts going down next week, we're out of that. Will there be a third wave? Probably a little blip, but it's not going to be as severe as the second wave. That's clearly what we're going to see. Yeah. It's a flat curve than the first. And I don't know whether you're able to, to predict or to see at the moment what the rates of fatalities are from those people going into hospital. But one of the things that I've been told by other uh, medical experts is that we're better now at seeing, because we're testing more people, we're seeing COVID earlier, uh, we're treating it earlier, so people are getting better outcomes than perhaps they were getting back in uh, April. Absolutely right. The, the fact that if you look at the numbers, 191 deaths yesterday, uh, a total of 6,000 people actually admitted in hospital. The one thing that's changed from the intensive care management of patients is people don't get rushed onto ventilators. There's some evidence that people put on ventilators too early, even though their oxygen levels going down, may actually have poorer outcomes mm. than those to try and manage it without putting them on the ventilator because of the damage to the lung by positive pressure ventilation. So uh, I think doctors have learned all over the world how much better to, to manage patients that come into intensive care about the decisions of oxygenation. And uh, obviously the spectrum varies from relatively young, healthy people that tend to be relatively rare, but there are some to elderly people with multiple uh, multiple comorbidities, lung, heart, other complications, and they're at greater risk. So by learning how to treat the, 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 the patients with, with COVID in ICU, the results get better. And that's what we're seeing. So more people get discharged and go home. And what do you make of some of the still what I would regard as slightly misleading um, data claims that are being made? For example, uh, like the one that says there's more COVID patients in Liverpool hospitals now than there were uh, back in March. Well, that would be the case because Liverpool wasn't really infested with an awful lot of uh, COVID at that particular time. 
People use statistics for their own ends, and there's no doubt. And what's been interesting, you know, I have a Twitter account and I've been following it for the first time, just over the last six months. I never had social media before. And people post all sorts of things on that. And some of it's correct, some of it's not correct. Uh, there's no doubt um, statistics are used to frighten us, especially by the government. And that's one of the conspiracy theories, to make us do what we don't want to do. And, uh, you know, once you start doing that and abusing them, you get problems. And, you know, we saw Andy Burnham querying the, the fact that the Manchester intensive care unit facilities were not operating at any different level than they were this time last year. Right. Uh, COVID. So, uh, you know, ICUs are full. That's the reason why they're there. They're there to look after people that have had serious injury or serious uh, operations that need stabilization post-operatively for a couple of days yeah. that's why they're there that's why they're full you want them to be full that means the hospital's being productive so uh, i think uh, misuse of statistics uh, you know in a democracy which is what we are is is clearly something that uh, uh, politicians use at their peril because once you find out they're lying deliberately then no one believes anything anymore and that's what we've seen in the states with trump and so on mm. so don't want that over here well that is the trouble isn't it because also it then becomes more and more difficult although most people will kind of do uh, as they're supposed to there will be large numbers perhaps who will not uh, particularly if they don't feel as though there's any reason to do it I think the two groups that don't are those that are at the lower end of the income that are just paid for what they do by the hour because unless you get some support what are you going to do mm. and talked about that and the other of course are people that want to go partying and uh, you know they say they're young they're healthy they don't believe it they say it's all lies and it's all a conspiracy we're just going out and we're going to dance around the streets yeah. and these are the two groups that one you feel sympathy for and we've got to do something about it the poor and the second group they need education that this is not feasible at the current time it is going to get better how long it's going to take we don't know mm. my prediction is another two weeks probably of the second wave and then that's it goes quiet again and then there'll be a little bit of you know is it going to be okay are we right out of it you know the vaccine you know my my belief in the vaccine it's going to take a lot longer than people think to get an effective vaccine to get people vaccinated is going to take a lot longer than we imagine whether it's effective or not and there'll be some rocky bumps to come with the vaccine i can see yes i think that's absolutely right professor carol sakura thank you very much indeed former head of course of the world health organization's cancer program dean of medicine at the university of buckingham uh, spectator writer uh, and now a social media kingpin uh, carol sakura of course very sensible uh, admits unlike some people uh, who won't admit that they got something wrong admits that when he said uh, there might not be a second wave uh, he got that wrong he didn't expect the first wave to be as strong he didn't expect this one to be as strong uh, but he also now thinks it could be over and done with in a couple of weeks time well that is good news isn't it we've also got some news from the northeast of england uh, that the rates may be falling uh, as a result of the young people in the northeast of england actually uh, doing what they've been asked to do which is to stop being quite uh, as shall we say party conscious as they once were mid-morning with mike graham talk radio now, it may come as no surprise whatsoever to you that we are in sort of lockdown eve because Manchester is due to go into lockdown tomorrow. Uh, you've got South Yorkshire going into lockdown uh, at midnight tomorrow night, basically. So early hours of Saturday morning, uh, they go into tier three as well. So there's an awful lot of people who are not going to be able to do very much of anything. Uh, but of course, there are problems with the various rules and regulations that were put into place in Liverpool, where, for example, they banned the, the opening of gyms, apart from one particular gym, which was kept open by uh, a, a rather, shall we say, brave gym owner who said, I'm not shutting it. They sent armed police around to try and make him shut the gym. He still didn't. And it now turns out that, uh, like the rest of Lancashire, Liverpool will now be able to open the gyms. Let's talk to Helen Dale uh, to find out just exactly how we got to this particular point. Helen, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I mean, you're very impressed with the kind of uh, what you call, I suppose, the passive civil disobedience of the gym owner in Liverpool uh, because he yes. did stand his ground and he wouldn't be intimidated by the rather over-the-top policing that happened while he was uh, while he was there. And it turns out that effectively, I mean, they've said that the situation has changed the government, but it hasn't really. They, they've U-turned. No, it hasn't. They? No, they U-turned and it's, it's quite a remarkable civil... 
achievement in terms of civil disobedience, what Nick Whitcomb, I think that's how you say yes. his name, has achieved. In He's in the Wirral, um, his gym, by doing that, because he showed how to run a civil disobedience campaign, even when, based on headline polling figures, the majority of the population are against, are against him, or yes. certainly in favour of considerable restrictions, if not full lockdown. The polls aren't quite clear on that point, and you can't expect polling companies to, to get that kind of thing perfect. That's beyond their power. Um, what he did, he showed, one, he, he raised money, two, he was entirely peaceful, three, he never lost his rag, mm. uh, four, he sought legal advice, and five, he did the sort of crucial thing that um, that civil disobedience, in order to make a successful civil disobedience campaign work, is at no point did he attempt to flee the jurisdiction or refuse to accept the punishment. Yes. What he's doing is challenging the punishment in the courts and trying to get the fine that he was, I understand it's a thousand quid he yeah. got fined when those armed coppers came to his gym, trying to get the fine waived in the court. Now, in the courts now this is largely although not in, not wholly but this is largely how the poll tax was defeated mm. yes. it's also it's also largely how the civil rights movement worked in the united states it's once again peaceful resistance and a willingness to to take the punishment and i tweeted earlier but i'll, I'll make the comparison here for for your listeners on talk radio the reason Nick Whitcomb and the Jim in the Wirral won a civil disobedience argument is down to their behaviour. Now, we've seen quite recently uh, two large groups of people lose a civil disobedience argument, and that was Black Lives Matter UK and more broadly the trans activist movement. And the reason they lost their, that argument, you know, they're now being berated in the parliament and widely dismissed all over the country, even though at least initially in both cases, there was a lot of public sympathy, is violence and an unwillingness to play by the rules. Mm. You know, so it's not just statue toppling. I mean, you had an incident in, for example, in Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, where gender critical feminists or the, the TERFs, as they're called, were beaten up, yeah. things like that. Mm. You know, that is how you lose a rights claim, a yes. rights campaign. People dismiss you. Yes. So that Jim in the Wirral and Nick Whitcomb deserves a lot of praise for, for doing that. Uh, contrast once again, two people who've made very good points about civil liberties over the years are Julian Assange and uh, Christopher Snowden. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Snowden. I can't remember his first name. Snowden. Now, the problems Snowden, yeah. Are, yeah, it is Christopher oh, you Snowden. Mean, what now, do you mean Snowden in, in Russia? You yes. Now the pro and that's exactly it. The problem for both those men is that many of their good points have been occluded by the fact that they fled the jurisdiction. Yeah. Yes. And, so and, yes, and, I have and, a lot and, of and, and and unfortunately, also because of the fact that they kind of um, where they went wasn't exactly considered to be the greatest place in the world where they could have gone. If you know what I mean. I mean, Snowden fleet. Well, yes, Russia, Russia is not uh, exactly was, the home of you know, civil liberties to, and human yeah, rights. I mean, is to, it? <laughs> to say that you're on the run from um, uh, freedom and democracy in America and then go and find yourself in uh, hold up in Moscow, it doesn't quite mm. work, does it? But let me ask you no. a, a very basic sort of legal question, which I don't know whether you can answer. Somebody told me because because my my interest here is that if you are able to crowdfund to the tune of thirty to forty thousand pounds to pay a one thousand pound fine. Effectively, the, the the state has no power over you because you can continually keep paying the fines. And I was wondering where this would all end because I thought, surely to heavens, um, the authorities will have to do something other than find them. But of course, then you start to get into a bit of a dark place. But I was told by somebody completely just on social media, so I don't know if it's true, um, that you're not allowed to use crowdfunding money to pay a fine. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but I would certainly advise against it, yeah. um, unless it's subject to court order, which is why the gym in the Wirral is taking advice from its lawyers yeah. and following the proper process and seeking to get the fine waived. And then the money that was raised... Uh, uh, the my understanding based on watching the gym owner's video 
um, on Instagram is that he wants it to go to a mental health charity mm. because obviously there is, uh, I mean, the two big ones at the moment that are, and the, the mental health organisations are screaming about this and the other ones that are screaming about it, of course, is Cancer, Cancer Research UK, which is the classic case of the National Health Service has turned into the National COVID Service. Yeah. So you've got this problem of mental health and cancer and there are others as well, but they're the two big headline ones. And Cancer Research UK has also been very measured and very careful on putting out accurate information about just how serious it is that so many people are missing out on cancer screenings or have even had, in some cases, had chemotherapy stopped, which is really, which really is, dangerous. Which is a very, very problematic situation indeed. But let's keep, yeah. keep to the civil liberties arguments for the moment, because you've also said it's, un, it's unusually harsh for this particular government um, to regulate behaviour in private settings, for example, in the home, because, of course, yes. an awful lot of the regulations now apply to what people can do in their own home. And that is quite worrying, isn't it? Yes, it's very, very unusual in peacetime to see... Uh, regulation of behavior in private places uh you, you know it, it's contrary to all norms of free countries that live under the rule of law and as far as i am aware and i have to admit i went and asked some barrister friends on this because this is not my area of expertise i mean when i left practice i was a commercial lawyer so but my understanding based on talking to to legal experts who do people like Francis Haar and seeing Adam Wagner's tweets and so on and so forth. My mm. understanding is that no free government in history has reacted to a pandemic by regulating behaviour at home or banning any gatherings over very small numbers in general. It certainly didn't happen during the 1957 and 1968 pandemics. So um, this is really, really, we are right on the outer limits mm. of of acceptability in terms of civil civil liberties for the simple reason that hundreds of years, perhaps even thousands of years, but if you add the two rule of law civilizations, which are the Romans and then the English, um, certainly hundreds of years of fights have been had over getting the government out of regulating private morality and private behavior. So you've had this situation of, of getting the state out of your bedroom basically that's the standard line that's used because people think of the alan turing case mm. uh, there was a, a memorable uh, the, some societies have to learn it the hard way that i mean the romans invented the rule of law and there was one particular moralizing emperor who decided to make adultery illegal and because uh, with reason i mean the stereotype about the romans is true they did tend to bang like a dunny door in a gale mm. to use the australian expression thank you very much for uh, that. Yes, uh, but uh, and it was disposed of by way of a fine. Yeah, and it absolutely blew up all over the government because Roman lawyers—they're called notaries, which is their equivalent of solicitors—figured mm. out ways to draft round it because Roman law was based on the Roman marriage was based on the law of contract, not on religion. They figured out ways to draft round it. Both the emperor and his daughter got dinged under their own legislation. You know, it became enormously embarrassing, and then basically it was literally a case of done goofed we'll stop doing this now. It's very embarrassing and making yeah. us all look extremely stupid. Uh, so sometimes you have to learn the hard way. Yeah, and the, the classic case in, in British history is Alan Turing, you know, the, the attempt to regulate private morality and private behaviour in one's own home. Now, the thing is, we've now consented, apparently, to the state regulating kitchens, sitting rooms, bathrooms, bedrooms and gardens. And it's different in quite not, in quite a lot, but it's but it's also different in quite a lot of different places. Which I mean, I was interested yes. to listen to Kip Malthouse, who actually gave quite a good account of himself. I thought because he was answering the question that these rules are now so complicated that nobody knows what they are, including, unfortunately, uh, the Deputy Chief Constable Owen Weatherill, uh, who appeared before uh, a select committee yesterday and said he didn't have the rules in front of him, so he couldn't explain what they were. But in fact, all you have to really know, according to Kip Malthouse, is the the, the rules in in your area where you live so if you live in Essex you only need to know what the rules are in Essex you don't have to worry about what the rules are uh, in Sheffield perhaps because you won't be going there but you know well that that's all right as far as it goes but the problem is of course what happens if you live in for example the home counties which is all except for Essex yeah. all tier one right okay and then you have to go to London 
for yes, work. Yes, no, I accept goes that. goes into tier two. Yeah. Now, uh, I mean, this is a broader problem, and I noticed that I, I literally only saw it this morning, so I have, I have not read widely or chatted to fellow members of the profession, but I saw that the Welsh devolved administration is attempting to shut the Welsh border. Now, I don't know whether that's in both directions or just for people coming into Wales or for leaving Wales. I will need to go and read the regulations. But I'm reasonably confident when I say that this is not possible in a unitary state like the United Kingdom. Even with devolution, you don't have federalism here. You can't do what has happened in Australia where the Victorian borders have been closed. And as I mentioned to you last week, it's actually quite difficult to do this, even in a federal system. The legislation has to be very carefully drafted. Mm. And we've now had an incident uh, 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 during the week where uh, there isn't a fetal cardiac unit at the main hospital in Adelaide. Yes, well, I was going to bring this up because this is where you get to the point where you've made a restriction on movement, um, which is so kind of hard line that it doesn't have any room for manoeuvre or or wiggle room, as we might call it, which has ended in a tragedy. Yes, because there's, I mean, there there have been attempts over a number of years to try to set up a fetal cardiac unit in Adelaide, Mm. but the argument has always been that there wasn't the population for it. And in any case, you could just fly the babies to Melbourne to one. And there are several hospitals in Melbourne that have fetal cardiac units. Australia has a very good healthcare system. It's one of the reasons why it's coped with COVID-19 as well as it has. And once again, remember, Victoria, Australia's worst state, is better than Germany, Mm. the EU's best state. So always keep that in mind. Um, But now you've had a situation where four newborns who have these cardiac deficiencies that some babies are born with. I mean, the one I've always heard of is babies that are born with a hole in the heart. Now, I'm not a doctor, but and I don't know what the four babies had, but you've had an incident where they were not able to be airlifted to Melbourne to be treated and they've died. And that's really quite alarming. Well, it really is. I mean, I can't imagine the situation where somebody didn't go, all right, we're just going to have to break the rules here. Well, yes, and particularly, too, as there is a strong tradition in Australia, we have this organisation called the Royal Flying Doctors Service, which, because the country is so huge, has always been heavily involved in the airlifting of very sick people to the cities. Uh, for medical treatment, and in many respects, that the the uh, the Royal Flying Doctor Service was the the first organisation to to make it widely known in Australian cities just how serious some of the health issues were in remote Aboriginal communities. And the the Royal Flying Doctor Service goes back as long as there's been aircraft, mm. because Qantas is the world's second oldest airline. Um, so this is a big part of Australian history. So that the fact that the Royal Flying Doctor Service is not able to fly over state borders is just quite extraordinary yeah. in the context of Australian history. Yeah. And is Australia showing any signs of easing any of these regulations? They are appearing to ease up in Victoria, although um, there have been the usual cock-ups yeah. uh, because it looked like the Victorian Premier, Premier was going to let the Cox Plate go ahead, which is a horse race. Yeah. Um, uh, with a crowd, a small crowd, admittedly, but with a crowd, mm. and it, uh, and uh, he had to do a very, very rapid U-turn because even people on the, what I've come to call the lockdown left yeah. were saying, "Oh, thanks, you know, we've we've not been going to funerals and weddings, and now you're going and to let Cox Plate go ahead." Yeah, yeah. It, it, so there's been the usual sort of to and fro, but it does, it is easing up in Victoria, um, and and subject to the usual fights and back and forth between the you you expect this in a federal system all the little fights you're seeing over here with with liverpool and with manchester and with wales and with scotland they're tiny compared to the fights that you have in a federal Mm. system the virtue of the federal system is that you can see very clearly because you can compare all the states with each other, which one has done badly, which is Victoria, and all the others have done well. Mm. Subject, of course, to that overriding thing that Australia does have very high state capacity, and Victoria, on a glo- by global standards, is actually fine. Right. Let's um, just finish up, Kellen, with this ridiculous story uh, about Michael Levitt, the Nobel laureate, who was banned from attending a conference, a scientific conference, full of other academics on account of his views about coronavirus. That's really quite extraordinary. And this is really alarming, which is the politicisation of science. Now, we, 
there's enough problems in the world with the politicization of the judiciary and yeah. you only need to look across the pond to see that in the US. Mm. Each side trying to pick judges that they think will agree with them on a particular political or moral issue. But no, this has now gone into science. And what's particularly alarming about this attempt to cancel Michael Levitt is that the conference was nothing to do with COVID. It was actually in computational biostatistics and biophysics, mm. which is what he won his Nobel Prize for. Right. So you're basically cancelling the most eminent scientist in the field because of his views in an un largely unrelated area. Mm. I mean, he's, what he's doing is bringing his mathematical skills and his computational and programming skills to coronavirus, which is why he's formed the views that he has. But it is still nonetheless... The stuff he said about coronavirus is nothing to do with the stuff that he does. He, he got his Nobel Prize for. It's just mad. It's completely mad. Mm. You cannot have this. This is not the way civilization progresses. It really isn't, because as we've often heard, and Helen, thank you very much indeed, we're out of time, sadly. As we've often heard, the whole point of science is that it's not about consensus all the time. It's about people disagreeing. That's how you discover about new things. That's how you discover the way the world works. It's about how you discover, uh, you know, things you didn't know anything about by discussing it and by practising it and by experimenting, not by saying everybody has to believe the same line, everybody has to say the same thing, everybody cannot deviate in any way, shape or form from this. That's not science, is it? That's absolute uh, obfuscation. It's absolute and utter denial that there could be any other way, which is very unscientific. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, as you will have heard, uh, Rishi Sunak uh, was just in the House of Commons announcing employees on job support scheme only need to work one day a week uh, to be eligible for some of the uh, measures that he's bringing in. Businesses that have been affected, such as pubs in particular and restaurants by Tier 2, where you're not allowed to basically go to a pub unless you are, of course, uh, from the same household, or unless, as some places are suggesting, uh, you're having a business meeting. So there's all kinds of things that are going on out there. Let's try and find out uh, what Sakib Barty makes of it all. Conservative MP for Meriden, former president of the Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce. Sakib, a very good afternoon to you. Uh, good afternoon, Mike. Great, now, great to be on here. Yeah, thanks very much indeed. Now, Annalisa Dodds, who we cut short because she was making a bit of a strange whining sound uh, about the uh, the new measures being brought in by the Chancellor, um, was basically saying that, you know, this is all over the place. It's coming uh, too little, too late for a lot of people. But it is backdated. Um, I realise that there'll be some people who say, you know, it's, it's not very much money, but it's better than nothing, I suppose. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I had to step out of the chamber, so I didn't hear what uh, Annalise said, and not because I hold anything personally against her, but uh, I was looking forward to being on here. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is, uh, this, this is a Chancellor that listens, and we've seen this consistently and continuously throughout the period. Yeah. And we know that we are going through a second wave, uh, Mike. We know the infections are going up. We know that Tier 3, obviously, were getting support, and a lot of businesses were saying, actually, Tier 2, there's not a lot of support there. Uh, so I, I, for one, I've got a lot of hospitality and restaurant businesses in my constituency. I think there will be some relief. Of course, the opposition will always say we need more, etc. But the Chancellor uh, doesn't have the luxury of just, you know, writing blank checks. He's got to do it in a measured way. And I think he's, got, he's gone the right way. I, I know there will be a conversation to be had about how uh, we, we fund all this. And that's very, very important as well. But that's what we do. We have that, uh, that responsible attitude to the economy. 
Yes, I mean, I do uh, think people who ask the question, and many of my listeners are doing that today, where is all this money coming from and how much is the tax burden going to be made uh, for us when we have to somehow pay it back? But at the end of the day, whenever uh, Keir Starmer tries to attack the Prime Minister over money, um, he ends up looking a bit stupid because the, the, the government has spent an absolute bucket load of it. Yeah, I mean, the uh, Keir Starmer, the opposition, I find them a bit odd at the moment because they, they seem to be, uh, you know, championing every policy under the sun and not championing uh, a single one. And I, I, I don't, you know, sometimes it's hard to follow uh, what they want, you know, with all the flip-flopping that's going on. The, the fact of the matter is, uh, we are obviously in this unprecedented situation. I apologise for using that phrase because it's overused, right. uh, you know. In yeah, period. but I mean, it's but true, it's, though, as well. <laughs> it's, it's true. We're, we're in this unprecedented situation. We've got to make sure. I mean, these are viable businesses, by the way, right? These are viable businesses. These are businesses that were, would be thriving if it were not for the pandemic. So I think the Chancellor actually, uh, you know, I already had uh, held him in the highest of esteem. But actually today he's, you know, he's listened and he said, actually, you know, I will respond uh, as, as and when needed because we know the winter is going to be tough. We know the, the uh, for the virus, uh, as far as we can tell, it's going to probably thrive in these uh, uh, environmental conditions. And we need to try and protect businesses and protect jobs as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, Jason Leach up in Scotland, who's their sort of chief um, medical advisor is basically telling everyone uh, to prepare for a digital Christmas. Um, I'd like to think that uh, uh, in Westminster, you might be a little bit more optimistic than that. Well, listen, I'm hoping for a proper Christmas. Uh, we, we cannot let COVID-19 uh, be the Grinch uh, the, this year. We need to try and get back to some degree of normality. And uh, certainly that's something I've said to the Prime Minister as well. So let's hope we have a fantastic uh, Christmas where we can at least see our loved ones, even if it is social distancing well, uh, in place. But you well, know what? I, I look forward to the day we don't even have social distancing in place. Well, I'm hoping there won't be any COVID marshals roaming about on Christmas Day, knocking on people's doors. I don't think that would be a terribly popular thing to do. But one of the questions that I get asked a lot, Saqib, is about what's the end game in terms of the, the tier system? You know, you're putting uh, South Yorkshire into uh, tier three Saturday morning, uh, Friday night, uh, it's going to be Manchester. You know, what's the kind of um, um, the qualification, if you like? And I know that this was a question asked by the leader of the opposition as well. Uh, what's the qualification for coming out of those tiers? Because there don't appear to be any targets being set. Well, uh, by the way, if the COVID marshal did knock on my door, I'll be offering them a cup of tea. Uh, uh, at least, you? You know, I'm sure it'll be quite cold over the winter. Well, I, you know, I, I try and be as nice as You're possible. a nicer uh, man than I am. <laughs> well, the, the, the fact of the matter is, in terms of coming out of this, I mean, the approach I've taken, especially when I talk to constituents, is we have leading epidemiologists, leading scientists who are looking at the data. It's about getting the R rate down, but it's also about seeing the trend go down. And I think that's what they'll be looking at. Uh, certainly in my constituency, we went into tier two, we had local restrictions before then. Uh, and the only trend we could see was actually household to household uh, mixing was leading to the spread of the infection. Yeah. Um, so, we've got, you know, I'm looking forward to getting the economy back open again. We, we have to get back to normality. And the, the, the end game really is to try and get this uh, virus under control. I think testing is really important. I think getting the fast testing is really important. I think track and trace is really important. And of course, uh, I'm hoping, you know, it's one of our British businesses that comes up with a uh, vaccine as well. And what do you say to those people who uh, suggest that perhaps you ought to be a bit broader about looking at where um, the other damage to people's health is happening? You know, people dying in their homes from diseases that might otherwise have been treated. People who are not going to see their GP because they can't get an appointment. You know, all of the kind of the, uh, the off to the side collateral damage that's being done uh, by by this whole uh, uh, business of COVID. And as I say, uh, I'm not particularly having a go at the government's strategy here, but there are a lot of people who think that it's a little bit one dimensional. Well, actually, I think um, they are making very valid points, right? Because and it goes right to the heart of the crisis that we're dealing with. We've got a public health crisis where there's a virus on the loose and it's rampant. We've got the economic question, not just about jobs, by the way, but the impact that that has on the longevity and the quality of life uh, that people have and what the long term impacts of that. We've got the mental health aspects of this. We've got the aspects of getting people um, and we have made progress, by the way, you know, when it comes to cancer appointments and things like that. But obviously people are they're afraid to do it. GPs are doing trying to do online uh, consultations mm. as well. Um, and it's just such a multifaceted crisis. And every part of this, the government is working really hard to try and address it. And the truthful answer is there is no one single answer. We have to find the balance. Uh, so I don't envy the prime minister or the chancellor or any of the senior cabinet ministers who are making these decisions. And as far as the wearing of masks is concerned, I've had a couple of people today uh, 
send me messages and they both work in the NHS and they're, they're saying that they have to wear masks all day, every day. It's very, very wearing for them. A lot of people are getting skin complaints. A lot of nurses are really struggling. You know, if, if, if the masks are supposed to work, how come the infections are spreading so much? Well, I think you've actually asked me this before and the, the response I gave to you then, I, I still stand by, which is, I wear the mask because it may make a difference, right? That, you know, so there is some scientific data that says it has some impact on it. I wear it because if someone else feels comfortable, you know, like I said, I'm a nice guy. So I, I, yeah, but you don't have to wear wear it all day though, do you? Well, no, and I understand that that's, uh, that's difficult, but, uh, we, we, we have to, uh, my view on this is always, we came to this virus with very, well, we had no knowledge. It was brand new and, you know, we're still learning lots about this day in, day out. And, uh, I, I mean, even having to wear it around the house of commons, it is very, very difficult, uh, because, you know, you might, I wear glasses, it gets, they get steamed up. It's all, or, you know, and that, that's just the least of, uh, people's worries. But I, 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 my personal view is it probably does make some difference. So, uh, if you can wear it, if you're willing to wear it, please do. Okay. Finally, Baroness Hoey was in here yesterday, um, Sakib, and she had a number of very interesting things to say. Very sensible woman. She's in the House of Lords now. Uh, A great supporter of Boris Johnson and the government. But she said maybe what's now required is a slight sort of shake up of the team. And by no means because she was anti uh, Matt Matt Hancock, but she said, you know, he looks like he's he's worn out. He looks like he's had a terribly tough old job over the past six or seven months. Would it be a good idea to get a new health secretary to come at this from a slightly different perspective, maybe, um, and just say, thanks very much, Matt, but, you know, let's get somebody else in? Well, my, I think you're asking me a question that is way above my pay grade, but I will say this to you. Uh, Matt has been working incredibly hard and he works all hours a day. He's been incredibly responsive. He listens. Um, so, you know, I'm a fan. So, you know, whatever the decisions are, but I think he's done a sterling job. And, you know, one of the biggest crises of our time, and the, this is the man alongside the Prime Minister and the Chancellor uh, and the Duchy of Lanka. So he's just gone through this and, I, you know, I, he has my utmost support. Okay, Saki Barty, thank you very much indeed. A Conservative MP for Meriden, former president of the Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, without further ado, let us move on uh, to talk about something which is actually non-COVID related, remarkably. Uh, And we're going to talk to Russell Quirk, property expert, because rules allowing two extra storeys actually could provide 170,000 new homes. It's one of those ideas that you would have thought somebody might have come up with before now. Uh, But let's find out from Russell how likely it is to happen. Russell, very good morning to you. Yeah, Mike, morning. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem that surprising that this would provide a lot more property for people. So why has nobody thought about it before? Well, I think because there's probably a whole bunch of unintended consequences, Mike. Mm. Um, what this is about is the government in August announced a new law, a new rule that allows the relaxing of planning restrictions, whereby if you own a three storey building, whether it's an office building, commercial building, residential building, you can just stick up to two storeys on top of it without planning permission. Now, uh, in principle, yeah, that sounds great, because as the research says, that means a whole load of new properties mm. that aren't subject to the the choke point of the, the whole planning process. The, the problem is that the planning process is there for good reason, and that's as a filter to make sure that things that are built are fit for purpose. Right. Now, you and I actually rehearsed a couple of times on your show the, the problems around permitted development, you know, where developers are turning little offices into even smaller flats, yes. you know, flats the same size as a car parking space with no windows. Right. This is essentially the same thing. And, and look, I'd, I'd have to say that this is cheating. I mean, this is the government trying to kind of fix something through the back door instead of just building more homes and providing more homes and the infrastructure that goes with it and so on. It's kind of a sticking plaster approach. And, and look, I, I understand why the government want to do it. I, I've just been looking at the latest house building numbers, Mike, mm. and, and they are horrendous because of COVID. I know we don't want to keep talking about COVID. What do you but- mean in terms of what, what numbers are actually being built? Yeah, so what's been delivered. So typically each quarter, so the numbers come out every three months, between thirty-five and 45,000 homes are built. Last quarter, so up to the end of September, only 16,000 were delivered. Right. That is half the amount of the worst month that has ever been in history. So right. there's a big, big problem coming down the tracks because, of course, there's not enough homes being provided anyway. But as a consequence of where we've been over the last few months with the pandemic, there's going to be even fewer. So I, I get the kind of sticking plaster approach, but you know, if you're sitting there uh, gazing out of your window right now and you're looking at a kind of fairly nice skyline in your town or city, wherever you are in the country, literally that could be disrupted 
immediately by the adding of those two stories without any check and balance whatsoever. Right. So I suppose they're talking about adding these uh, two stories onto existing blocks of flats, if you like, rather than onto a house that's already got two stories. Uh, You can make it four stories because that then doesn't necessarily become a two family house, does it? Well, it's anything above three stories. So if you've got a three story home, block of flats, block of offices or any commercial building, Mm. technically you can tag on up to two extra stories off and make them flats without any recourse to any authority or any 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 filter, any authority whatsoever. Um, so I, I just think that we, we just need to be careful with these these kind of knee jerk policies mm. that are, are designed to grab a headline or two, which, of course, they've done today. There will be some unintended consequences. We will end up with, you know, uglier landscapes. Or I suppose so. Yeah. Um, but I guess also you would expect if you wanted to push for this, you would want it to be affordable for people as well, because what you don't want uh, is to build a whole load of flats which only can be bought by very wealthy people from overseas. Well, that's a very good point. So, of course, you know, with the majority of developments over a certain threshold, there's a social housing contingent that's included. So typically anything over, let's say, 25 units that gets planning permission, a third of those units thereafter have to be devoted to social housing. As I understand it, that doesn't apply here. So you you could own a huge, great block of flats or multiple blocks of flats and just, yeah, chuck a load of penthouses up uh, at a million quid each in South Mm. London, West London, East London. And in fact, Mike, you know, maybe this is a way for you and I to go and earn a few quid. We'll just go and buy some office blocks and stick some flats on top. and, And honestly... This is a developer's delight. You could almost argue it's the kind of lunatics being able to take over the asylum because what a developer's going to do, they're going to max this out yeah. to earn as much per square metre as they possibly can. Well, it's a bit like when the government said to universities, you can charge anything you like up to £9,000 a year for tuition. And guess what? They all charge £9,000 a year for tuition. <laughs> you know, funny that. Hey, Russell, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Property expert Russell Quirk there saying, beware uh, of uh, what may be um, the, the wrong kind of gifts being brought to you if you're in the property business. Just because it says you might be able to add on two stories, it may not be, in fact, the greatest idea that anybody ever had. I think if it was done properly, I don't have a problem with it. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.